Unsung Murder Ballads discusses topics of a graphic nature and in graphic detail and may not be suitable for children under the age of 13. Listener discretion is advised. Hey everyone, welcome back to Unsung Murder Ballads. This is episode 47. I am Janice Dead. I'm Jameson Dead. All right, and... uh, yeah, it's just the two of us tonight, so we have ourselves a serial killer tonight. Oh, nice. I don't know if you, if you'll know this one or not, because it's kind oh. of obscure. Okay, all right, interesting. Let's see what we got. All right, so I'm not going to tell you his name yet. We're going to start with the teaser. I, I always look forward to those. All right, so it's Ohio in 1982. Around midnight on April 2nd, a man approached the home of a pregnant, off-duty policewoman claiming that his car broke down. Oh, God. Well, that's always a bad scenario. (laughs) He asked for a flashlight, which the woman supplied him, and the man left, allegedly, to go fix his car. He returned a short time later, asking if he could use the woman's phone. He spoke briefly with the woman and told her his name and where he worked. After gaining the woman's confidence, he attacked her. Of course. The woman put up a courageous fight and managed to scare him off. No kidding. Really? Wow. Now, obviously, he didn't know she was a police officer because she then promptly called her co-workers who rushed to her assistance. I hope so. And by telling her his name, he clearly didn't expect her to survive. Yeah, exactly. So after receiving a description of the assailant, his name and where he worked, police were able to locate him the next day and he was arrested and charged with assault. Oh, wow. Okay. So this is the strange serial killer case of Michael Bruce Ross. Hmm. Don't I, recognize I don't recognize it. No, I don't recognize the name. So uh, interesting. Uh, yeah, I, I really thought I would too. I, I, I feel like I'm, I'm getting better at recognizing, but uh, apparently no. not with this one. Well, this one is like I said, it's obscure. But the interesting thing is, most of it takes place here in New England. So I thought no you kidding. Have known it. Ah, okay. Michael Bruce Ross was born in Putnam, Connecticut on July 26, 1959. He was the oldest of four children, having two younger sisters and a younger brother. The family lived on a chicken farm in Brooklyn, Connecticut. Just myself, I find it very interesting because a lot of the cases we do, I, I don't readily recognize the places. But as as you're firing off places right now, I'm like, yep, I know where that is. Yep, I know where that is. Well, like, yeah, it's because it's not that far from here. <laughs> right. But like, I don't know. It's it's a welcome change of pace where you're like, oh, OK, I know exactly what that's like. OK, like that fair area. enough. Fair enough. I love it when, like, for example, the one I did in Worcester I actually recognized all the places that took place. Nice. Yep. So Ross's home life was extremely dysfunctional. Surprise, surprise. Yeah. Right. Check one. His mother, who abandoned the family at least once, had been institutionalized and beat all four of her children, saving the worst treatment for Ross. Oh, wow. Some family and friends have suggested that he was also molested by his teenaged uncle, who committed suicide when Ross was six. Wow. That's a hell of a combination. You're right. By, I mean, I mean, if, he, if the guy killed himself at six, it mean, I mean, when he was six, it means he molested him when he was younger, which is really fucked up. Yeah, that's really dark. Yep. So Ross was a bright kid and performed well in school. He graduated from Killingly High School in Killingly, Connecticut in 1977 
and then graduated from Cornell University in Ithaca, New York, where he studied economics in 1981. He became an insurance salesman. Now, he exhibited okay. antisocial behavior from a young age, and Ross began stalking women in his sophomore year of college. Alrighty then. Eventually, his violent sexual urges took on a new dimension when he began raping many of the women he was stalking. Amazingly, he was evading capture for many years. Wow. I know, right? Yeah. It's, it's just bizarre. But again, it was a different time, I guess. There weren't cameras yeah. everywhere. I am a little bit surprised, though, that he started as late as he did. I thought that, you know, he was going to start as a 16, 17 year old kid doing that kind of stuff. I mean, it may have just been unreported or maybe he'd never admitted to it, but who knows? But I mean, realistically, I think there's a world of difference between a small town high school and uh, Cornell University. Oh, yeah, by far. Probably exposed to a lot more women that he was like, oh, my God, that he didn't know since he was a kid kind of thing. True. Okay, I can say that. However, in September 1981, shortly after his graduation, he finally landed himself in jail for assaulting a teenaged girl. At the time of the incident, Ross was working as a management trainee for Cargill, Inc. in North Carolina. During a business trip to Illinois, he kidnapped a 16-year-old girl, dragged her into the woods, and gagged her before being interrupted by the police mid-activity. Holy crud. Talk about just in the nick of time. Exactly. I mean, (laughs) caught in the act, that rarely happens. Yeah, uh, you never hear that. It's normally right after it happened or when it's way, way, way too late. Yeah, and all the evidence is gone. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Ross was arrested for unlawfully restraining the girl and was fined $500 and put on probation. That's it? That's it. Wow, that's sick. It's fucked up. Unlawfully restraining the girl. Never mind the fact that, I mean, they must have stopped him before he actually raped her. I was going to say, if that's the only charge, then it must have been in the very infancy of the act. It must have been because it doesn't make sense. But I mean, if that was your intent, you should be charged with the what you were intending to do. But that goes back to that goes back to attempted murder and that whole frustrating thing, too. Yeah, most definitely. On May 12th, 1981, Ross murdered his first victim a Cornell University student named Zun Nok Tu. All Uh, right. According to her father, Zung was an idealist who worked hard. She sponsored orphan children through the mail, volunteered to help cancer patients, and joined Ithaca's Big Brother Big Sister program. Zung emigrated from Vietnam to America in 1969 when her father, an economist, took a job at the World Bank. Her family left a war-ravaged country for Maryland, just outside D.C. in a city called Bethsaida. She graduated from Walt Whitman High School with honors and went to Vassar College in 1977. Zun was a year younger than most of her classmates and tiny, like barely five feet uh, tall and weighing about 95 pounds. Oh, damn. Yeah. One of her friends said, quote, It angers me that he picked on someone so small and so polite. But there was a spine of steel to her, too. Zun could take care of herself. Now, unfortunately, obviously not. (laughs) Yeah, not enough, unfortunately. 
So at Vassar, Zung was quiet and studious, but far from reclusive. Another friend of hers named Maria, who did not want her last name disclosed, described Zun as very bright, sweet, and kind with a wry sense of humor. Zun was an economics major, and, Mar- and her friend Maria said she spent her junior year at the London School of Economics, saying that she loved her time in London, went to the theater, and it was a real turning point in her life. One of her teachers, a Miss Balfour, recalled that Zun had a large extended family that was so proud of her for attending Vassar that they came in carloads at the end of the year to pick her up. This woman had a huge support network. I guess so. Sounds like she was a great person and just doing great things. Yeah, she was one of those, you know, model citizen types. And it sucks that she was chosen at random. Yeah, wrong place, wrong time. At the time of her death, Zun was 25 and a first-year graduate student in agricultural economics at Cornell. She planned to return to Vietnam to use her degree to help spur development there. On the night of May 12, 1981, Zun failed to return home and the landlady at her rooming house called the police. A few days later, the Ithaca Journal printed a missing persons notice with a small photograph of Zun who was last seen reading a newspaper in Warren Hall. Zoon's body was found at the bottom of Fall Creek Gorge in Ithaca, New York, near a fraternity house where Ross lived. Oh, damn. Yeah, he's kind of an idiot for putting it so close to him. Yeah. She had had an evening class with him the night she was last seen alive. So they literally shared a classroom together. So wouldn't he be like high on the let's check this guy out list? Who knows how many people are in that class? Because some of these colleges have huge classes. So I don't know. But you'd think so. But are you ready for this? Oh, campus and Ithaca police initially listed her death as a suicide. What? Which angered her friends. Oh, it, I would anger anybody that would know her. You would think so. Yeah. So her friend Maria said that she had called a mutual friend and they both agreed that it was not possible. Her having said, quote, I don't think I've ever heard of her having a single bout of depression. She was not that kind of person. She enjoyed living too much, unquote. Just fucking crazy. Suicide? Yeah, you can't. She showed absolutely no signs of anything. She was also listed her her brother, Lan Man Tu, that she, he said that she was the one victim that most people didn't know a lot about. And he wanted to make sure that everyone knew who she was, how she lived her life, the kind of person that she was. And he said, the one thing I want people to know about her was that she wasn't just some tragic victim. Her life was good up until the night of her death, which is crazy. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I, I applaud him for bringing light to her. You know, because unfortunately, a lot of the the first time victims, they do get overshadowed. A lot of victims get overshadowed. I mean, this I was actually surprised I could find as much information about her as I did. But it it has to be because her brother wanted to talk about it. Because how many times in these cases am I like, yeah, all we know is what she was wearing when she disappeared or, you know. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. Now, Ross's second victim was a woman by the name of Tammy Williams who was 17 years old. On January 5th, 1982, in Brooklyn, Connecticut, Tammy was walking home from her boyfriend's house when Ross abducted her near his family's farm 
and proceeded to rape her before strangling her. Wow, what a piece of shit. Now, Tammy's teenage friend, Justine, said that the two were just that they were just normal teenage girls who hung out, played pool, listened to music and had boyfriends. She said, I I can still remember the way she laughed. She had a good heart and I remember her giggle, she said. Uh, Her friend Tammy also said that no one and no one could have anticipated the tragedy. We, she said, quote, we were never thinking these streets would be dangerous. Some that some sicko would be out there, unquote. Well, yeah, it's one of those. You don't think it will ever happen to you until it happens to you. Right. And she disappeared from right, right around Dayville, Connecticut. And I don't know if you remember, if you're familiar with that town, it is small and you feel really safe there. Oh, yeah, most definitely. And I'm guessing it was even felt even safer in the 80s. I would think so. The evening before she disappeared, her and her friend were at a place called Al's 2, where they were listening to music like Leonard Skinner and the Eagles. Now, it's funny because I haven't been able to confirm this, but Al's 2 reminds me of a place that was in Worcester called Albums, which sold like old vinyl records. Okay. And, and maybe it's not related, but the fact that they went there to listen to music makes me think it might have been the same kind of place. And that maybe this was like the place this guy opened for a second one. You know what I mean? That would have been cool. Yeah. yeah maybe. I, I don't know. I just remember going to albums when I was a teenager and I loved it. So the two had gone to school with Ross when all three of them were growing up in Brooklyn and they knew his family. He literally abducted someone that he knew. Now her friend said her friend said that both her and and Tammy had taken shortcuts near the Ross family chicken farm. They were both there at that record store and they left separately. And that was the last time that she saw her friend again. That last time she ever saw Tammy. Man, that's heartbreaking. Now, sadly, though, her loved ones thought she was still alive. Tammy's body was found several years later. Years, years concealed in a fieldstone wall in oh god wall. <laughs> oh god fucking crazy just eight weeks after murdering her ross prayed similarly on his third victim a 16 year old named paula Pereira from wall kill in orange county new york i just okay. want to say new york has some weird names for towns. yeah, yeah I, I wall kill <laughs> weird but who knows? I mean, I'm sure we have some weird ones here in Mass that I'm not familiar with. Oh, yeah, we definitely do. So Paula had hitched a ride from Ross after school in March of 1982 to commute to her boyfriend's house. But it was the last time that anyone was going to see her. That day, she was feeling sick and left the Valley Central High School early to get rest at her boyfriend's house. 18 days later, her battered remains were found in a barren stretch of ground off Route 211 in Wallkill, New York. She God had been, damn. Yeah. She had been brutally, brutally raped, sodomized, and strangled before, oh, God. Yeah, before being tossed into a marshy area off the side of the road. Fucking Just crazy. Throwing her away like she's a piece of trash. Well, the sodomized part's crazy, too. Well, yeah. No, exactly. What the fuck? So Paula was known to hitch rides from strangers because she and she had this weird sense of adventure. She was young and lived in the country, so she trusted people, which unfortunately was her downfall. Yeah, it didn't go too well that time. 
so she also her friends had claimed that she would tell them all the time that she would never accept rides from anyone creepy which kind of tells you that ross didn't come off as creepy so it's it's, it's always the ones that are in disguise right and let's and the, uh, the funny thing is he probably i mean he's an insurance agent so he probably came off about as threatening as an insurance agent mailmen aren't threatening and we all know how that can go <laughs> Yeah, that didn't start till the 80s either. That's interesting. Yeah, but uh, hey, we're going with professions, and uh, that's just the first one that came to mind. Right. No, and it's funny because I've debated covering the very first case of uh, a mailman losing his shit and killing people, which started the whole phrase going postal. (laughs) So a friend of hers, Barbara Emery Willard, said that it isn't fair that Paula is often mentioned as a simple footnote in a serial killer's crime. She said, quote, it irks me. She was such a wonderful person. She had a whim. She was whimsy and innocent. It's true that unfortunately, a lot of people like this are literally just little footnotes because I don't have much information on her other than what we're talking about right now. Right. Yep. Now, her friend wants people to remember that Paula wanted to be a chef, that she liked the musical groups ABBA, the Beach Boys and the Monkees. She was tiny, about five feet tall, and had curly blonde hair and blue eyes. Now, the interesting thing is that's two really small women that this guy has gone after. Just about to ask, is there a pattern here? Is it part of the MO? Like what? what I'm guessing he has a victim type. Yeah. Okay. All right. So it's around this time that Ross attempted to assault that pregnant policewoman. He was arrested soon after fleeing the scene. But he was bailed out of jail by his parents a little more than a month later and sent home to Connecticut for 16 days of psychiatric study. (laughs) Okay. I mean, they probably thought this guy must be crazy if he's trying to rape a cop. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I can. Yeah. Except you wouldn't know that she was a cop unless she was wearing her uniform. Well, yeah. So the psychiatric reports show that Ross was indeed suffering from psychological problems, which he blamed on the 1981 divorce of his parents. Now, quick mental note, that was the same year he started killing. That seems like a really weak out, but agree, hundred percent agree. <laughs> Surprisingly, even though he had a criminal record, including two sexual offenses, There was little action taken to ensure that he would remain under constant psychiatric evaluation or police surveillance. This allowed Ross the freedom to carry on with his murder rampage. Of course, because, you know, let's not make it harder for him. Yeah, like, "Ah, you seem okay. You only tried to rape two people and we didn't know that you've killed people already. Yeah, you know, it's it's not till the third or fourth or fifth one till we actually... Take you seriously. Yeah, well, he has three victims so far, but they haven't found one of the bodies. And the other two, they're obviously not making any connections on. So that same year, he picked his fourth victim in Griswold, Connecticut. A woman by the name of Deborah Smith Taylor, who is 23, was walking on the side of the road near Danielson, Connecticut. Now, again, that's not too far from these other towns we're talking about. So he's not straying too far from his home. Yeah, he he wants to stay where he's comfortable. Right. And and he's probably just grabbing an opportunity, let's be honest. Because just like the other ones, on June 15th, 1982, Deborah and her husband had run out of gas and had split up to look for sources of gas when Ross 
picked Deborah up in his car. He then raped her and choked her just like he did his previous victims. My God. Deborah's body was found three months later in Canterbury, Connecticut. So in August of 1982, Ross appeared in Ohio in an Ohio court for assaulting the pregnant policewoman. During the proceedings, he pled guilty to the charges, was fined $1,000, and served four months in jail before being let out on probation. What is it going to take? Like, seriously? <laughs> oh, my God. The, re- the probation report suggested he make better use of his free time. It, <laughs> it even suggested that perhaps he take classes or start jogging or learning to, I kid you not, fucking fly. <laughs> oh, seriously? my God. They were clearly That's... hoping these activities might discourage his violent behavior. That recommendation is so shocking and pointless and demonstrates just how little that those involved understood what was really at work with him. Exactly. Yeah. It doesn't sound like doing that would kind of deter a violent serial rapist. Here's my thought process. If you teach him ways to get away, (laughs) physically flying, (laughs) flying, if you know how to fly, whether you're doing it legally or not, there's a good getaway. <laughs> yeah, and you're reminding me of a case in Alaska with the guy who used to take women out in his airplane. Do you know that case? Uh, maybe. I'm not sure. You might have to add it to the list. Oh, boy. <laughs> so Ross, once out on probation, went back to Connecticut and began working as a door-to-door insurance salesman. Oh, lovely. Yeah. Can you... I just Isn't it great when your work lets you scope out victims (laughs) yeah like let's make it easier for him what the hell so he was able to secure the job after lying about his criminal record during the application process of course it's likely that he spotted his next victim while canvassing potential clients there you go ross's fifth victim was robin don stavinsky 19 of norwich connecticut After a gap of more than a year, he targeted Robin sometime on or around November 16th, 1983. He raped her, then throttled her to death after getting a hold of her as she was hitchhiking. Again, the hitchhiking. Yeah. Her body was found a week later on November 23rd, 1983 by some joggers at the entrance of the Uncas on Thames Hospital in Norwich. He left her near a fucking hospital. That's just dark as hell. It's fucked up. Like, maybe someone will find her and save her. Wouldn't it be crazy if she wasn't dead when he died? Oh, her? that would have been insane. That's just nuts. So at the time of the discovery, investigators working the case were able to link Stavinsky's murder with that of Tammy Williams and Deborah Taylor's because of the marked similarities between the cases. So they're now starting to figure out it's a serial killer. Well, it's about finally. Damn yeah, exactly. Most of the victims were of similar stature. They had all been sodomized, found face down and strangled. It was becoming increasingly clear to police that a serial killer was in their midst. Yet at the time, they had few clues as as to the identity of the killer. Working with the evidence from the crime scenes, they worked frantically to put a face to the serial murderer. On April 22nd, 1984, 
Ross added two more victims to his list. What? Yeah, this one's probably the most tragic part of the whole story, man. Oh, God. April, Brunez, and Leslie Shelley, two 14-year-old girls. I'm sorry, what? Yeah, from Griswold, Connecticut. Oh, that's just sick. Well, you know, I've seen photos. I'm going to post photos of all the victims on our socials. But one of these girls, she may be 14, but she doesn't even look close to 14. And when we talk about his his victim profile of someone being really small in stature, this girl was tiny. This is appalling. Yeah. So Ross kidnapped the girls near a pizza parlor. He then proceeded to bind and gag them before sexually assaulting and strangling April. While April was being assaulted, Leslie, who was put in the trunk of the car, kept talking to her through the trunk, telling her everything was going to be okay and that she was right there. Oh, my God. Yeah. Oh. Now, Leslie's the one in the trunk. She's the tiny, tiny one. And she's literally listening to what's happening to her friend and trying to offer her comfort. How do you have any peace of mind to say anything? I'd be crying and freaking out. And I don't know. I mean, it's so fucked up. It is. Ross then strangled Leslie to death before dumping the two girls in a culvert in Preston, roughly nine miles away from their hometown. That's just nauseating. Now, Ross would later claim that murdering Leslie actually affected him on some level. And some speculate that perhaps it was because she was so small for her age. So, so a serial killer with morals? I don't know. I, you know, I sometimes wonder about it. Maybe it was her talking to her friend through the trunk. She must have gotten to him somehow because he claimed later that it, it fucked with him. Wow. So, I know. It's weird. Ross also was alleged to have raped but not killed a 21-year-old woman named Vivian Dobson in 1983 and a woman named candace ferris in indiana plainfield police would later reject the possibility that ross had been vivian dobson's rapist but they did not press charges and ross later made no confessions so there's just this theory what? out there huh? yeah i know it's weird it but it's a theory and i wanted to include everything oh yeah no i just like that's mind-boggling so at this point, Ross, like the news or someone started calling the this series of killings the Roadside Strangler. Okay, that's lovely. You're, somehow you're got. giving him attention. Lovely. Yep. But it was at this point that his final victim, Wendy Barabo, 17 of Lisbon, Connecticut, was picked up on the side of the highway on June 13th, 1984. Unfortunately, she met the same fate as all the previous seven girls, and her body was found two days later under a pile of rocks. Oh, God. Yeah, he gave her like an old school Native American style or Viking wow. style freaking burial. It's crazy. That's wow. However, Wendy's tragic murder finally led the police to capture Ross when witnesses testified that they saw her enter the ve a vehicle matching a description of his car. There were witnesses who said they noticed a thin white man with glasses driving a blue late model Toyota following her the day they dis that she disappeared. 
It turned out to be the break the investigators were hoping for, obviously. After combing through vehicle records, authorities zeroed in on Ross and found out that he lived in Jewett City, which lies close to where all the bodies were found, or most of them. Detective Michael Malchik, who worked on the Tammy Williams case, was assigned to be the chief investigator on Wendy's murder. Malchik began his investigation by pursuing the car that witnesses claimed to have seen. Yeah, so Malchik printed out 3,600 locally owned blue Toyotas that match the description. Wow. Can you imagine? Crud. Yeah, just going through that many. No way. Now, coincidentally, the first person that he visited was Michael Ross. <laughs> Can you imagine? How, oh, like, just my think about God. That. He got lucky that he was on the top of the list. But imagine if he was at the bottom of the list, how many more people might have died? Oh, yeah. No kidding. Because 3,600 people, that's literally 100 people a day you would have had to have visited. Oh, my God. Get through that list in a year. Yeah. Screw that. Oh, my God. Yeah. So during the interview, Malchik immediately became suspicious of Ross. He described his visits as a roller coaster ride because every time he was about to leave the apartment, Ross would drop him a crumb that would make him think that he should ask more questions. He's leading him on. Like, what the fuck? Yeah. Did he really think he was going to get away with it? Like, was it a game to him? Well, now now he's getting brazen. Now he's like, let's see how far I can push this. Let's see how far we can keep them interested. And yeah, right. he, well, he's he's getting cocky now. Well, I mean, Hallie's got a moniker now. He's the roadside strangler, right? Yep. So with all the evidence in place, Ross was arrested in late June of 1984 for the murders of the six Connecticut victims. Eventually, Ross couldn't withhold his ghastly secrets any longer and confessed to some of his other crimes. Initially, he told Malchik only of Wendy's murder, but then would later, while in police custody, confess to killing April Brunet's, Leslie Shelley, Tammy Williams, Deborah Taylor, and Robin Stravinsky. However, it wouldn't be year for it wouldn't be many years before he would finally claim responsibility for Paula Pereira and Zun Nock too. Wow. I know. It's crazy. It meant that all that time, those women, the, the family of those women just waiting and then finding out that this guy's been in prison all that time and no one knew. Yeah, uh, it's got to tear you apart. So Ross eventually took the police to the site where he had dumped Tammy, April, and Leslie's bodies. And in November 1985, he pleaded no contest to murdering Deborah and Tammy and was sentenced to 120 years in prison. For just them? For just them. Okay. All right. Good. For the last four murders he committed as well as for raping Wendy and Robin, Ross was sentenced to death in 1987 in Connecticut. So he gets 122 years for two murders and then the other ones he gets death. Well, death is is great and all, but that you can just drag that out until you actually physically die. Nice segue. So that was in 1987. In 2001, while on death row, see, <laughs> Ross pleaded guilty to for the first degree manslaughter for the killing of Paula Pereira in New York in 1982 and was sentenced to eight and one third 
to 25 years in prison. What a weird sentence. Eight and one third. What? Why? I don't know. Eight years and four months. That's what that breaks down to. To 25 years for killing somebody. Oh, my God. Eight and a third. It's just so <laughs> fucking weird. <laughs> yeah. Not okay. Ross stated that his urges were like his urges to kill were like having an obnoxious roommate that he could not escape because it was always present. Sure, buddy. What? <laughs> yeah, that's how oh he my described God. it. He further stated that he would often get orgasmic pleasure from his fantasies and acting them out. Yet, he also said he would be disgusted later by the exact same thoughts. The, yeah. Okay, what? Yeah, no kidding. This guy's all, all, all over the place. After relieving himself from his fantasies, he said he, quote, felt such a sense of loathing and self-hatred, unquote, that he often longed for death to liberate him from his mental torture. Okay, yep. During his incarceration, he met a woman. Oh, God, no. Which became his fiance. Oh, my God, no. A woman by the name of Susan Powers from Oklahoma. Okay, so what's wrong with her? Because clearly there's something is. Well, we don't have a lot of information on her because she broke up with him in 2003, but still visited him up until his death. So I have no idea, man. Oh, Some my people God. just like to be close to people like that. Uh, sure. <laughs> Ross went on to become a devout Catholic after his arrest in 84, meeting regularly with two priests through the years and praying the rosary every morning. It's not going to save you, pal. <laughs> During his time in prison, Ross translated documents into Braille, acted as a mentor to other inmates, and financially sponsored a child from the Dominican Republic. Uh, what? I, I, how do you financially do anything? I'm going to guess whatever little bit he's making in prison, he's sending to some kid in the Dominican Republic. Okay. You know, I don't yeah, know if you remember. I'm at a loss for that one. There was a there was a time where you could be like, for less than one cup of coffee a week, you can help like, improve the lives of someone from you know. <laughs> it's gonna be one of those. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. Signed up yeah. for it. Yeah. Although he opposed the death penalty, Ross strongly supported his own death sentence in the last year of his life, saying that he wanted to spare the victims' families any more pain. I call bullshit. Yeah, that you I call bullshit. Cause. It's like a reverse psychology thing. Everything he's been doing. Ooh, look at me. I'm translating shit into Braille. You know, I, I deserve to be saved. Right. Right. But he also wants to end it all because he's just over it all. Well, interestingly, there's there's a Cornell graduate named Kathy Kathy Yeager. She basically believed that Ross believed that he himself was forgiven by God and that he would be going to a better place once he was executed. <laughs> so okay, she said, pal. Yeah, so she says in his mind, he's not being punished, he's moving on to life eternal, and that's the I, the irony about the death penalty. He's looking forward to the peace that comes after that. Eternal damnation, my friend. Well, he believes, you know, that's the problem with certain religious beliefs is that if you ask for forgiveness from God, you will be forgiven. Okay, but that doesn't mean that everything you've done just goes away. Depends on your religion. 
there is a group of people who truly believe that you could kill someone. And then if you honestly repent, repent at the end, you could still get into heaven, which irks the shit out of me because I can't oh imagine wanting to be sitting next to someone like this in eternity. Yeah, no, absolutely not. So Yeager also said that Ross had come to believe there was no way his death sentences could be commuted without forcing the victim's family to suffer through more legal hearings and that he knew his life would be meaningful even behind bars. Wow, so he's got said, a big set on him. Right. So Yeager said that he had a horrible life and that he wanted to do good. But in spite of this, an hour before the execution was to take place in the early hours of January 26, 2005, Ross's lawyer, acting on behalf of his father, obtained a two-day stay of execution. For what cause? Well, Ross had been scheduled, was then scheduled to die by lethal injection on January 29, 2005 at 2 a.m. However, earlier in the day, the execution was again postponed because of doubts that Ross was mentally competent, having fought against his death sentence for 17 years and suddenly waiving his rights. So basically, that's what we're talking about. But you don't have to be competent to be strapped to a chair and have a needle stuck in you. No, but there, but it is you cannot execute someone who's not mentally competent in the United States. So his father's, really? yeah, you didn't know that? Not a clue. No, that's absurd. Yeah. Like if you're not, con- like if you, if you don't understand what you've done or what's about to happen to you, then they can't execute you. Yeah. But so, well, so it, the it, argument that they're making is that because he fought against being executed, then all of a sudden changed his mind that he is no longer competent and therefore cannot be killed. That's why these days of executions are happening. Oh, my God. Okay. To, to me, that's just wrong. I, it's fucked up. It's a, it's a weird way to do it. And, man, are they grasping for straws? Yes, highly. So his attorney claimed that Ross was incompetent to, was incompetent to waive appeals as he was suffering from death row syndrome. Please tell me that's not a real thing. It's basically one of those like you've just come to you just give up like fuck it I don't care anymore. And so you're institutionalized, kind of. Yeah, and so he's fighting in those for that reason. But I guess that's okay. what they call it. Yeah. So in his final days, Ross became an oblate or associate of the Benedictine Grange, a Roman Catholic monastic community in West Reading, Connecticut. This what, point, does that, he, what does that all mean? He, he joined a very specific religious group and he's either doing it as another means to stop his execution or to kind of show how serious he is about his religious beliefs. However, it's not going to save him. No, he was finally executed. Oh, by thank le- God. By lethal injection on May 13th, 2005 at Osborne Correctional Institution in Summers, Connecticut. He was 45 years old. Now, oh wow! Ross did not request a special last meal before facing his execution. Oh man, I was looking forward to <laughs> knowing what his last. That's always interesting to me to to know what these people want as their last meal. I know he had regular prison food that day, which is just oh. ridiculous. <laughs> I'd have been like, I want something cool, but right. When asked if he would like to make a last statement, 
he said without opening his eyes, no thank you. Ross was pronounced dead at 2.25 a.m. His remains were buried at the Benedictine Grange Cemetery in Reading, Connecticut. After his execution, Dr. Stuart Grisanian, a psychiatrist who had argued that Ross was not competent to waive appeal, received a letter from Ross dated May 10th, which read, Check and mate, you never had a chance. Wow. What a sick fuck. <laughs> yeah. He's like, I wanted to die. You could do whatever you wanted to stop me. Checkmate. That's so fucked up. It really is. <laughs> so Ross's execution was the first in Connecticut and all of New England since 1960. Oh, damn. Yeah. It was also the first and only execution in Connecticut administered by lethal injection. As of today, Ross was the last inmate executed in Connecticut. The death penalty was abolished in Connecticut on April 25th, 2012. Oh, wow. Now, Vivian Dobson, whom Ross was alleged to have raped, became a vocal opponent of the death penalty in an effort to save his life. What? Yeah. Huh? Can you imagine trying to save the life of your rapist? Uh, no. I'm telling you, man, religious people scare the shit out of me. Oh, my God. That's what? Yeah, I'm not kidding, man. Fucking nuts. Oh, no. And that is the case of Michael Bruce Ross. Holy damn. It's weird that, so, you know, this happened. I mean, it was it was, you know, 30, 40 years ago. So I guess it's hard to remember crimes from that long ago. But I'm just surprised it's not more famous up here. Yeah, no kidding. But yeah, that was that was a crazy one. Like I said, I'm going to post pictures of his victims, but that that one Leslie Shelley, really just the tiniest little thing. And the the scumbag who would I mean, granted, he's a scumbag for killing anybody. True. But like just I guess, again, I think that's why it affects him as much, because she just she's just the tiny, tiniest, cutest little thing. And it just doesn't make sense that you would kill someone like that. But we've talked about worse cases. So, oh, yeah. Yep. All right. So, yes, everyone, thank you for joining us. Once again, I am Janice Dead. I'm Jameson Dead. And we'll see you next week. Bye.